Welcome to this special highlights program of a satellite CME symposium held at the 11th annual meeting of the American Society of Breast Surgeons. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Several months before our rounds with the investigators panel discussion, we asked the ASBS membership to submit interesting cases from their practices and chose five to present to our faculty panel of Drs. Mike Dixon, Julie Graylow, Cliff Huddis, Tom Julian, and Sandra Swain. To begin, Dr. Lisa Jablon presents a patient with locally advanced disease. This case is a 45-year-old woman who presented to our office back in August of 2007 with a locally advanced breast cancer. She had delayed coming in for about, I would say, four or five months at least because she had lost her job, lost her health insurance. She had felt a lump in her breast and large lymph nodes in her underarm. On examination, she had a normal exam other than the breast. In the breast examination, she had about a three centimeter, slightly ill-defined lump in her left breast around the three to four o'clock location. She had a little thickening around 12 o'clock, but wasn't a definite mass. And she had pretty bulky left axillary nodes that were palpable, no supraclavicular nodes and nothing in the right breast. So we were able to obtain a mammogram and an ultrasound. The mammogram confirmed a speculated lesion in the area of our concern in the lateral side of the breast and only showed a vague density at 12 o'clock. And the ultrasound also confirmed solid tissue in both areas. We did core biopsies of both areas. The lateral side came back as a poorly differentiated grade three infiltrating ductal cancer. It was ERPR negative and HER2 new positive. And the other area was the 12 o'clock area was just an area of adenosis and fibrosis. She had a lot of density in her breast, and we therefore ordered, uh, we did get her insured once we had the core biopsy report through a state-funded program, and then we ordered an MRI, which she had obtained, which basically confirmed the same findings as the mammogram and ultrasound, added nothing much more. The lymph nodes lit up extensively, as did the lateral side of her breast. Metastatic workup was negative, and she was very interested in breast conservation. So she received neoadjuvant chemotherapy on an FB5 protocol where she received four cycles of epirubicin and cyclophosphamide every three weeks. I think in the fourth cycle, they gave bevacizumab. Then she got four cycles of doxytaxel, avastin, and herceptin. I should point out, this is one a clinical trial. Yes, Normally, we trial. wouldn't see bevacizumab or avastin being used in this situation, but this is an NSABP study. But it is pretty typical for a patient like this to get chemotherapy and trastuzumab is neoadjuvant therapy. So what happened, Lisa? Well, after the chemotherapy, she did develop a few side effects during the chemo. She got neuropathy. The taxane had to be reduced a little bit. She developed hypertension, which she didn't have before. That was treated medically and was responsive. She had clinically a complete clinical response to the chemotherapy. We re-mammogrammed her, and there was really nothing seen except the clips. We did the MRI again, and there was only a very slight amount of enhancement at the lateral side of the breast where the cancer had been located, but it was nonspecific, according to the radiologist. And then she had a needle localization lumpectomy, localizing the area of the clip and an axillary node dissection. She had no residual disease in the breast and 16 lymph nodes negative. This patient did not have a sentinel node. She went directly to axillary node dissection. Mike, how do you approach these situations? So I just did a leader with Cody for the European General Surgical Oncology, and there is this split. Some people do sentinel node before neoadjuvant chemo. Some people do it afterwards. I see no sense in doing sentinel node before neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I'm like, we want to know what's going on at the end. In patients like this, we looked, and there's about 750 patients in the literature where they've done sentinel node lymph node biopsy in patients with proven histological axillary node metastasis at 
time of presentation. And in that 750, the rate of sentinel node detection is pretty much the same as you would expect. In other patients who are having sentinel nodes, the false negative rate's pretty much the same. So for my approach for many women is what I call a scout mission. I go in, take those clips out, and do a sentinel node biopsy. One of the things you make sure is you get enough sensor nodes, you feel any palpal nodes in the lower axilla. I don't worry if I take five, six, or seven nodes in this situation, because if those five, six, or seven are negative, then I've avoided doing axillary dissection. So this patient would be a, a very good patient for me for doing a central lymph node biopsy combined with that wide excision at the end of a chemotherapy, because we see on imaging that the disease has disappeared. Clearly, if the disease hasn't disappeared, then you do axillary dissection. So, Tom, agree, disagree, or in between? Well, if Mike was taking his surgical boards in the United States, they'd probably fail him for that because, unfortunately, that's how it's looked at still, that you need an axillary dissection. But I agree with him. There is downstaging that goes on, and certainly you have a significant amount looked at. And you go back, and if you look at the B27 data Terry Mamonis harvested, there was a significant equal detection rate there for doing that procedure. The false negative rate was a little high, about 11%, but okay, that was early on in the whole process of this. And with the use of things like ultrasound now to upfront know what your node status is by biopsy, this is actually being investigated now to try to really answer the question. ACASOG has launched a sentinel node trial for patients who are going to receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy to know up front what the node is based on a fine needle aspirate or a core biopsy. That's their Z71 study. Those patients are then treated, and then post-treatment, they undergo a reevaluation by ultrasound to see if there was a significant downsizing of the axillary node, and then they go on to have the sentinel node biopsy with the axillary dissection to try to understand what is the real false negative rate. Problem is that the data that's out there is kind of like all over the place. There's data from MD Anderson on N1 to N3 disease that showed a high false negative rate of about 27% after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, so that made people nervous. And then there's other studies that show where for N1 and even some N2 disease that the false negative rate drops down to what people are used in the adjuvant setting, maybe 6 7%. In that. So it's a question that has to be answered. What do I do right now? Kind of like what Mike does. You know, I look at selective patients, and if they have a really, really good response with their neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we'll look at the axilla with the ultrasound. If it doesn't look worrisome or suspicious, then we'll go on and do a sentinel node biopsy. But again, you have to let the patient know up front that this is not all housed in stone and such. So she, in fact, did have a path CR. One thing that was interesting, getting back to this issue about HER2, Cliff, is do you generally order fish? I mean, if, for example, somebody comes in and they already have a 3-plus IHC, and there's a real heterogeneity about that, how do you approach that decision, Cliff? Well, officially, for a 3-plus we have done ourselves, we wouldn't bother doing fish, even though ultimately people tend to ask for it. And I think from a research point of view, you probably want to have it for future look-backs at the database. But 3-plus or a fish ratio greater than 2.0 was the eligibility criteria for the randomized adjuvant therapy trials. Fish alone was the eligibility criteria for the BCIRG trial. And so many practitioners just use fish. But frankly, unless you don't believe the 3-plus, 
I would be inclined just to treat. And to take it a step further, if a patient had a 3-plus stain and I got a fish result back of, let's say, 1.8, you'd have a real conundrum. Are you going to ignore the 3-plus and the potential benefit of trastuzumab because of the fish? And if you're not going to change your practice on the fish, why do it? Okay. And Julie, any thoughts about choice of the neoadjuvant regimen in these people with HER2-positive disease? A small fraction would use the, quote, Buzdar approach where the trastuzumab is given with the anthracycline, which theoretically gets people real nervous about cardiac dysfunction. How do you approach it? Yeah, well, the ACASOG trial that's trying to look at that, give the anthracycline with the trastuzumab is still ongoing, and we don't have big data from that. So I wouldn't encourage giving an anthracycline concurrently with trastuzumab until we have more data. It's in trials. You know, I think we've got big, large, randomized trials that used anthracycline taxane and a big trial that looked at the docetaxel carbo, that's the TC with the H, which is trastuzumab. My sense, you know, talking around the country to my colleagues is we're pretty split. And some of it depends on which studies you participated in, too. You know, if you got used to using the anthracycline taxane, you're probably still using that. I mean, the only potential benefit of the TCH isn't more efficacy, which is actually what it was designed to test. In the lab, it was supposed to be better, but maybe a little bit less heart toxicity. The heart toxicity overall differs by a percent or two, and it's real. And I think we can probably pick out people at high risk for heart toxicity, and those I would avoid an anthracycline in. But for the rest, I think it's reasonable to use an anthracycline followed by a taxane. And the risk of heart toxicity isn't terribly different, really. It's an absolute difference of a couple percent. And I think we can probably pick out who has the highest risk. Maybe just a quick comment about where we're heading with anti-HER2 therapy. And particularly if you could comment on the fascinating new agent, TDM1. It's really kind of unique, I think, in medical oncology and really exciting. The breakthrough that trastuzumab represented was really twofold. First, of course, it's very active, but the second is a novel therapeutic approach for breast cancer docs being an antibody. It is possible to link with a dissolvable linker molecule chemotherapy to the trastuzumab and therefore use trastuzumab essentially as a homing device to drag a chemotherapy agent to the HER2-positive cells, and that's what TDM1 is. T stands for trastuzumab, and DM1 stands for a chemotherapy metansine derivative that is a microtubule agent, or an anti-microtubule agent to be precise. This is a drug that was too toxic really for general systemic use, but about five molecules of DM are actually attached to each trastuzumab, and that joint molecule is what we're using to treat. And the response rates are remarkable in several ways. First of all, in trastuzumab refractory disease, the drug is active. But specifically in patients who've been treated with trastuzumab and lapatinib and had progression on them and have had every standard FDA-approved chemotherapy for stage 4 disease, the response rate's 30% to TDM1. And that's a response rate that in the first-line setting would get oncologists to sit up and take notice, that it was in the salvage setting is really remarkable. The other angle on this is that even if it turns out that TDM1 ultimately is no more or less effective than something like docetaxel or paclitaxel with trastuzumab, it appears to be far less toxic. It doesn't have the profound and significant myelosuppression, certainly not the alopecia. And so this could be a situation where we end up with a drug that's perhaps more effective but also markedly less toxic. 
The other thing I just can't help but mention is that this general field is exciting and there are all kinds of classes of active drugs in the HER2-positive field, more than we can probably develop. There are other monoclonals like pertuzumab. There are more potent tyrosine kinase inhibitors like naratinib. There are HSP90 inhibitors that all show remarkable activity in this field. And it gives us, I think, tremendous enthusiasm for the possibility that we could move fully away from or at least past chemotherapy for HER2-positive disease. We had a therapy that really does not cause hair loss, does not cause nausea and vomiting. It really isn't a whole lot different than trastuzumab by itself, which is almost non-toxic. That'd be a lot easier decision to make. But I guess it's going to be a while before we could even potentially get there. What do you Well, no, actually, I hope it's not a while. TDM1 is at least conceivably going to get an accelerated approval on the basis of its phase two data. And there are already very active adjuvant discussions underway. Julie, we're looking at this TDM1 versus chemotrastuzumab in first-line metastatic disease. If it plays out that they're equivalent efficacy-wise, but obviously a big difference in toxicity, do you think people would wait for an adjuvant trial to use it in the adjuvant setting? Or, again, a patient like this with a small tumor, they could get it paid for, would they use TDM1? I think in order to get it approved, you're going to need to have tested it in the adjuvant setting. We haven't even talked about the cost of all of this, too. I think we should start trials with TDM1 in the adjuvant setting. It's a terrific drug. It's very exciting. But I don't think we should jump to using it there. The next case was presented by Dr. Marion McDonald of a young woman with an invasive cancer and a BRCA1 mutation. A fascinating 38-year-old female who for several months had a right upper outer quadrant thickening area that her family doc followed as a cyst. Eventually, he got an ultrasound which showed a 1.1 centimeter mass in the 9 to 10 o'clock position. It wasn't really palpable on physical exam. She came into my office with a mammogram that showed a speculated mass, indeterminate calcifications, and a BIRADS-5. Ultrasound, as I said, taller than wide, highly vascular. By way of background, she's a smoker. She's gravita zero, para zero, single, menses at age 11. She works and travels, and she relies on this travel to maintain her work. She's self-employed, so her insurance requires that she you know, keep her job and travel. Upon a lot of questioning, and we really had to tease this out of her, she has a paternal grandmother who had breast cancer and a great uncle with breast cancer on the father's side as well. So we set her up for an ultrasound-guided core biopsy, and that showed an invasive lobular carcinoma, ERPR positive in the 95-96 percentile range, HER2 new negative. She was a grade 2 out of 3. Because of the mammogram findings, we did get an MRI pre-op, and that showed some concerning sites on the contralateral side, but they all got biopsied and were benign. She saw multiple consultants, and based on really teasing out some family history, she decided to get genetic testing. She was BRCA1 positive. She hadn't seen a GYN in many, many years. She had gone, got an ultrasound. Everything was negative for GYN workup. So before you go on, Mike, what would you be thinking about in terms of her other breast and her ovaries, age 38, knowing she's BRCA1? The first thing I'd worry about would be her other breast. And I think one of the things, presuming a little bit of time's elapsed, you've had time to discuss with that woman, give her options, because certainly you'd be concerned a little bit about would she be better treated by a bilateral mastectomy. For me, the central options for a woman like this are either unilateral breast-conserving surgery or bilateral mastectomy. I wouldn't favor a unilateral mastectomy in this kind of situation, because I just don't think it deals with all the issues. What I often found in women like this, where we sometimes waiting for testing, is it's useful to get the cancer out, get the central node done, 
and then give the patient time because right. you've taken all the heat out of the situation. And then you really do have time for the patient to go and see a plastic surgeon and discuss all the options. Now, what about her ovaries? She's 38, and you mentioned that she's interested in childbearing. What about the ovarian cancer time clock? Does she have a little bit of time, or is it... Yeah, I think she has a little bit of time. I think the data suggests that, you know, your risk of ovarian cancer is a little bit later. But it is ticking, and so, you know, you have to put it to her, I think. And at 38, you know, she's getting to the stage where she will be an older mum with the issues related to that, that reduce chances of getting pregnant as you get older. So for me, I wouldn't be in a desperate rush to remove her ovaries. And I think sometimes, you know, we force patients into making decisions too quickly and this time, and I think we have time. So Marion, we wanted to focus on the systemic therapy issue and particularly her concern about fertility and chemotherapy. Maybe kind of bring us up to date. Okay, so she was gene positive. We did offer her a lumpectomy with radiation, but after much ado, she decided to have a unilateral mastectomy with reconstruction, and her pathology was a 1.4 centimeter lobular cancer, T1C, central nodes were negative. We did go ahead and send her for an oncotype, and her score was 19 with a recurrence rate of 19%. So we're at this point now where she's trying to decide about chemotherapy. This is actually a current case. She wants to try for pregnancy. She's considering a reduction on the contralateral breast, but she's not sure yet what she's going to do. And interestingly, the oncologist did some workup and found out she has a hereditary or congenital osteoporosis. She's already osteopenic. So that's contributing to her concern about losing her ovaries at this point. Just one more word about local therapy, Mike. Nipple-sparing mastectomy, will you do it at all? Will you do it in just a preventive situation, or will you do it for invasive breast cancer? Will you do DCS, or you not do it? Yeah, I do a lot of nipple-sparing mastectomies. One of the things I do which I found useful is that if you're going to do a sentinel node biopsy, and I'll often do a sentinel node biopsy first, at the same time do a biopsy of the ducts behind the nipple. I had just the same case fairly recently, one with a 35-millimeter invasive lobular cancer. The MRI suggested it came close to the nipple. So I did a sentinel biopsy, biopsied the ducts behind the nipple. The ducts behind the nipple were clear. Sentinel node was clear. So I went and did a skin-sparing mastectomy knowing that my tissue behind the nipple would be clear. So that's one way out of the conundrum. I want to get Sandy's take on this question of her fertility and how it might be affected by chemo. What would you say to this woman And is there any chemotherapy that can be used that's sort of less likely to affect fertility or not likely? Her risk being with an oncotype of 19 is about 12%, I think. And if you do an adjuvant online, it's very similar. It's interesting. It's about a 16% relapse rate. So with that, let's just take 12%. If you were to give her chemotherapy, she'd probably have about a 3 to 4% decrease in recurrence with chemotherapy. So what I would do is discuss it with her and see what her threshold is for that. I think you can make a case either way. Probably what might tip me in recommending for this patient is her age. She is very young. She's 38. So I might be, as the audience was, more on the side of recommending chemotherapy, though having a thorough discussion with her about this. Now, you ask about fertility preservation. I think that that's a double-edged sword. As you probably know, I presented the B30 data at San Antonio about a year ago. And in that study, it was in patients with positive nodes, but we looked at 2,500 women prospectively premenopausal women, and we found that those women who had amenorrhea for six months actually had a survival benefit no matter which chemotherapy they got. So in someone who has an ER-positive tumor, 
it may be that the hormonal influence of chemotherapy, the ovarian suppression, is really what's important. On the other hand, you can say, well, do ovarian ablation, which would be good for her with a BRCA mutation, and tamoxifen, that also would be good, and that would probably be a standard in Europe, and Dr. Dixon could comment on that. So I think you do have a lot of, it's a complex case, and you have a lot of discussion, but probably what I would come down to is recommending chemotherapy. If she didn't want to do that, I would say that ovarian suppression, if she wants to have children, she's older and it's unlikely that she will have children, though it's possible. You could use an LHRH agonist for a couple of years with tamoxifen. Although, Marion, you know, the issue comes up if she goes on tamoxifen, she's not going to be able to get pregnant. Is she okay with that? She's debating that now. I think the people at Dana Penn recommended that she freeze some eggs and kind of keep them on standby. I don't know if she is going to head with that, but that was offered to her as an option, a fertility clinic down there. Mike, I'll just ask a question. Would the fact that this is a lobular carcinoma make any difference? Because we know in the neoadjuvant setting that apparently the lobulars don't respond as well, and yet we don't seem to have any data in the adjuvant setting to tell us what to do and whether these lobulars are different. Well, I think in the neoadjuvant setting, as you said, I mean, the past CR rate is low, 3% or less, so we know they're not as... Responsive. I mean, you do get clinical responses, but not path CRs, so that's very true. I'm trying to remember if I, I must have seen, there must be data on oncotype scores in lobular versus invasive ductal. What well, does that show? It's really for? the same as for invasive ductals, but this case is funny. This is a BRCA, and they more typically have triple negative breast cancers. It's ER positive, and it's an invasive lobular, and I think that this is worthy of some very careful review. The oncotype score here is also a little bit high. For a good risk invasive lobular that's strongly ER positive and HER2 negative, you would have predicted a low oncotype score, and I wouldn't have been surprised if for an invasive lobular if the score had been 8, not 19. So it's funny. I have to say one more thing, though. The fertility that's hanging over this case is an issue that's probably being, it's tempting to do this, but I think it's being sidestepped. She's 38 years old. She's not going to be fertile with any of her choices. And allowing that to drive the decision-making is actually very unfortunate. Julie? Well, I am a huge proponent of attempting to, you know, maintain fertility and allowing attempts at pregnancy after treatment, but this is really one case I would squirm about it. She's 38 years old. She's BRCA1 positive. Our general recommendations for oophorectomy are to do an oophorectomy when you're done with childbearing or at age 40, whichever is earlier. And she is going to, with any treatment, get out to 40. I want her ovaries out pretty soon. And, you know, so this whole issue of preserving her fertility, which is going to, even if she doesn't get chemo, delay her endocrine therapy, is a problem for me. I almost never say that, but it's that BRCA1, the ovarian cancer risk, that makes me squirm a little bit here. Plus, anything she does is going to delay or impact her treatment of this cancer and that young age at 38 worries me as an independent risk factor for recurrence. You know, Cliff, you said that you were kind of surprised at her oncotype. It kind of leads into the question of, you know, how often do we get surprised? And in fact, do we change what we do? I want to get your take on, again, some more quantitative data we have about using oncotype. Before we do, I just want to ask Marion, in your setting, who generally orders the oncotype, the surgeon, the oncologist? Do you talk about it? Do you fight about it? We know that if you all ordered, it's going to get done quicker. The patient's going to, and the oncologist will have it to discuss quicker in a time of high anxiety. What about at your place? I think in most of our scenarios where there might be some equivocal decision-making, the surgeons order the oncotype. 
we sort of wait till we get the path back. We kind of talk to the patient and we go ahead and order it 15 days out from their hospitalization. I'd say the majority of the time our surgeons order it. And Cliff, I interviewed Monica Marr for our surgical series about to be published, and she was talking about how you all kind of plan together. And she knows for certain patients, most of the node negative, she's going to go ahead and order it. The ones that are borderline, you know, maybe she'll leave it up to you, node positive, I guess. Do you think that's what's happening in general in academia and in the community setting or maybe a heterogeneity? So we had a hard and fast rule that our surgeons couldn't order the oncotype, that only the medical oncologists could because it had to be ordered only when there was going to be use of it. The problem is it introduced another two-week delay into an already lengthy wait. And so we reached an accord where for ER positive 5 millimeters and above breast cancers that are node negative where the patient is reasonably thought to be a chemo candidate, the surgeon's order. And we have a simple algorithm so that we then see patients with the result in. Julie, any thoughts? I think we're all looking for some confidence in not giving chemo. If this had been a grade one, I'm not sure if you asked that either, then I think you could have had less people ordering the assay. The grade two makes us a little bit more nervous, looking for a little more help in trying to make a decision to not give chemo. So Cliff, and we are curious, again, in view of the comment you made about how you were surprised what you thought about this paper. And there's been a bunch of them that looked at, you know, does Oncotype really change what people do? And this study found, like a lot of these, that the answer is yes. And a lot of times, about a third of the cases, I guess you'd say change what they did, which to me means when they looked at the patient without the oncotype, they thought, oh, this patient doesn't need chemo or does need chemo. And a third of the time, they were wrong or, you know, the oncotype changed what they did. Most of the time, going from getting chemo to not, but also the other way where, you know, you're talking about maybe avoiding a recurrence going the other way. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because there's been a tremendous debate in our community about the reliability of the known local pathologist who does a good job and that you can emulate, essentially, the results of the oncotype if you trust your pathologist. And yet, there's multiple series. There's one from Israel. There have been a couple of others where 30 to 40 percent of the time, if docs commit on paper to what they would do when they get the oncotype score, they have a change. So I think there's a risk in all of this, though, which should not go unmentioned. And that is, for all of it, We have an inclination to believe the oncotype. We have two data sets that are from randomized studies where it does seem to predict the benefit of chemo, but it's still not validated at the highest levels. And there is a risk that we're still using that as a gold standard prematurely. I'll just mention also, we'll be talking a little bit later about oncotype in patients with node positive tumors, but there is a trial we found out about in San Antonio I know, I guess there was some discussion, Julie, about including patients with node-positive tumors in Taylor. It was decided that that just wasn't practically feasible. But Luca Gianni in Milan actually has launched a study in patients with node-positive tumors, and those who have low risk are going to be randomized to chemo or not. Again, that tough randomization. So we'll talk about that more when we talk about the other case. The next case was presented by Dr. Claudia Lagatoro of a patient with an axillary recurrence many years after a negative sentinel node biopsy. This is a 60-year-old Caucasian female that presented to our practice with a palpable left axillary mass. Her history begins in 2004 when she was diagnosed with a left stage 1 T1CN0M0 invasive ductal carcinoma. At that time, she underwent breast conservation and sentinel lymph node biopsy. She had zero of one negative nodes for metastatic CA. 
her tumor at that time was ERPR positive and HER2 negative. And she subsequently was treated with four cycles of adromycin cytoxin, followed by whole breast radiation therapy and five years of adjuvant aromatase inhibitor. In the fall of 2009, she noticed a palpable left axillary mass after having had a previously normal mammogram in April of 2009. Her workup included an MRI of her left shoulder and upper extremity, which revealed suspicious adenopathy. Her largest influent at that time was 3 by 2.5 by 1.6 centimeters, which had loss of normal architecture. An ultrasound-guided core biopsy was performed, and the path confirmed metastatic adenocarcinoma, which is morphologically compatible with the breast cancer that she originally had in 2004. This was ERPR positive and HER2 negative, and it was strongly positive for cytokeratin. And following this workup, she was seen by us in the office. This was back in December of 2009. And as an initial evaluation, she was recommended to undergo a left axillary node dissection. She subsequently had this nine days following her initial consultation and had four out of 17 nodes that were positive for metastatic breast carcinoma with extranodal extension. After her surgery, she had a left-sided mammogram that revealed post-surgical changes and no other abnormalities within the breast. A bilateral breast MRI was also done. It was negative. And she was recommended to receive four cycles of taxotere cytoxin, followed by anti-estrogen therapy with tamoxifen. And she sought advice of two separate radiation oncologists, which also recommended axillary radiation. So I want to get the oncologists of the panel's thoughts about her, I guess you'd say, well, no, it's stage 4 NED, not adjuvant therapy, but she's getting chemo and a switch to a different hormone. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, you told me this patient was 2004 when she had the first sentinel node, and there was one node. A one sentinel node. Right now in your practice, what's the average number of sentinel nodes, would you say? Roughly around four. Okay. So in 2004, I can't remember exactly where we were, but I think it was maybe a little bit earlier. And there was one paper, Mike, that this was a series of 1,500 cases. It was published in the Annals of Surgical Oncology recently, and the axillary recurrence rate was 0.26%. Mike, what do you think the spectrum is, and does it correlate with number of sentinel nodes removed? Yeah, first of all, it's, you're right to pick out there's just one sentinel node because, you know, you hardly ever come across any patient who has a single sentinel node, and I agree with Claudia, you know, you should be removing somewhere between two and four sentinel nodes. Our average is about three, and we do like the MSKCC. We feel around if there's any other palpable nodes, we'll take those as well. And so I think that will reduce your sentinel node recurrence rate. I'm going to talk later on in the conference about axillary recurrence after sentinel nodes and a little bit about treatment of the axilla. So I don't want to say too much about it. But my rate of local recurrence from the literature that I've seen and our own data would be about 1% to 2%. So that kind of figure. So that's what a large percentage of the audience voted. You can't get rid of axillary recurrence completely because I think some of it's biological, but you should be able to reduce it at a considerably low level. So as I mentioned, the NSABP had their meeting last weekend, and they actually discussed with the membership, Tom, the data that's about to be presented next month at ASCO on this classic, really important study that we've looked forward to. And you, Sandy, and I debated about what you would be allowed to say since this is all embargoed. You don't see the red dot on your chest right now from the the gallery in the back. There's only 1,000 people there, I mean, that heard this, but anyhow, it's embargoed. It's embargoed. In any event, can you just describe what the trial actually looked like 
All right. Well, this was patients who had operable breast cancer, clinically node negative, were randomized to receive a sentinel node biopsy in group one with a concomitant axillary dissection. And in group two, they received a sentinel node only biopsy if that sentinel node was either intraoperatively or postoperatively positive. Those are the individuals that went on to have an axillary dissection. And they were followed. There were 5,611 patients. It's the largest sentinel node study to date looking at this. And actually gathered all of these patients, entered in in just a little under five years. And we presented the technical data on this back in 2004. And the primary outcome data for this, for overall survival, disease-free survival, and regional control, I think people will come away feeling better about sentinel node biopsy. You know, the thing that surprised me is I always felt like, well, I mean, I'm not going to say who cares, but I mean, this is to me like old news. And yet when we were chatting a few days ago about this, planning for this conference, it was your impression that there are not small numbers of surgeons not doing sentinel node? There are not. It is not uniformly utilized throughout the United States, just like core biopsy is not uniformly used for the initial diagnosis for breast cancer, for image-guided biopsy. So it's not. And actually, there have been places across the United States that would not be moving forward until they had substantial outcome data to back up using it. So we hope that this will help set the stage for that. Mike? Yeah, I mean, what you probably don't realize is we did this study about 20 years ago no, in Edinburgh. You, you never did this study uh, 20 years ago. Bef- Come we on. Did, we did it without sentinel node. So yeah, what you we just did didn't is, operate at all. No, so what we did <laughs> is, study, at that time, we didn't node. have sentinel node, but we had four node samples. So we actually did this study, the two separate studies, close to about 1,000 patients, followed up for about 12, 15 years now. So what we found is that although in the patients who had, this was, non-directed axillary node sampling, but lower axillary sampling, those patients did have a higher rate of axillary recurrence. But their survival, none of their lines were ever below the axillary dissection line. So even they had a higher rate of axillary recurrence, their survival always looked slightly better than the patients who had axillary lymph node dissection. And Veronesia said the same, you know, if you actually leave the axillary nodes in the negative patients, it might actually do you some good. So I think what this will show is that there might be a higher rate of axillary node recurrence in a sense of biopsy patients, but it won't make any difference in terms of survival, and that'd be my view. So let's finish out with this patient. Claudia, where is she right now? She's gotten her chemo or what's going on? She received her chemo and she was getting her adjuvant radiation therapy. And she's on tamoxifen. They switched the hormones. To tamoxifen, yes. So final comment from Sandy about systemic therapy in this situation, which is really not exactly adjuvant therapy. How do you approach it? Do you approach an axillary recurrence differently than an in-breast recurrence? What about chemo? What kind of chemo? And what do you think about the idea of, in this case, switching the hormone? Well, there are some data from the NSABP, and Irene Wapner published a composite of about five NSABP trials in node-positive disease looking at this issue of IBTR or local recurrence, which it would include an axillary recurrence. And unfortunately, the outcome of these patients is not good, and especially this kind of patient that has an ER-positive axillary recurrence. 
looking at her paper was in node positive, but she actually presented some node negative data in some of the other trials. The annual mortality was at least 5% in those patients who had ER positive, no negative disease at diagnosis, and who had this axillary recurrence. So that's about at least a 25% five-year recurrence. If they had an ER negative tumor, it was even higher. It was about 30% a year. But getting back to the question at hand, what do you do with this patient? Do you treat her with chemotherapy? There's really no data like all these cases we're talking about today of what to do, but medical oncologists have very strong opinions about it. And we've tried to do clinical trials. In fact, there was an international trial that Irene worked very hard on and patients who had an IBTR, which is different than this, but had IBTR to randomize them to get chemo or not, and it failed. An international trial. We have hundreds of these patients, but they only got about 150 or so patients on it. So obviously, many people felt like it was an important question, though people aren't willing to put their patients on it. And what we found is we talked to a lot about this in the NSABP in our post-neoadjuvant studies about what to do with these patients, which is kind of a similar scenario, is that people just have strong feelings. And most medical oncologists will treat these patients based on no data. I probably wouldn't. I don't usually treat them with chemotherapy if they've had a recurrence like this and would agree totally with changing the hormonal therapy. She's had five years of hormonal therapy, so it was a long time since her original diagnosis, and I think that's reasonable to do that. And the radiation, I think, also is very reasonable. Cliff, I'm going to use the post-neoadjuvant issue that Sandy just mentioned to ask you, because the NSABP also this past weekend talked about doing a study of a PARP inhibitor. Actually, I think, Tom, it's in the neoadjuvant setting with chemotherapy in triple negative tumors. So how about like about a 90-second summary of BRCAness and triple negative and PARP inhibitors, Cliff? So PARP inhibitors were developed actually by Alan Ashworth and co-investigators in the UK originally to target a DNA repair mechanism that is dependent on an enzyme called PARP. This is upregulated and is a key feature of DNA repair in people who have BRCA mutations because they've lost homologous repair, which is another one of the key DNA repair pathways. And a single agent PARP inhibitor, Olaparib, was remarkably effective in stage 4 treatment refractory breast cancer. That would have been probably the big news at ASCO last year in breast cancer, except that a randomized trial by U.S. Oncology using a different company's PARP inhibitor in triple negative breast cancer with chemo was strikingly positive, higher response rate, and two exploratory endpoints of progression-free and overall survival were also positive. The argument there is that many of these triple negative breast cancers biologically resemble the breast cancer seen in BRCA mutation carriers and, in fact, have upregulation of PARP, and therefore PARP inhibitor could be useful there. There will be more wrinkles to this story. The phase three trial to confirm this study result has been completed but not yet reported. The particular PARP inhibitor is biochemically different from the others in the class, and it may or may not really be a PARP inhibitor the way that the other drugs are. So this is going to be an ongoingly complex story. The good news is you'll have lots of reason to keep talking to your medical oncologist while they try to explain it. Plus, you know, it's really nice to have something optimistic to talk about in people with triple negative tumors. I think sometimes they really get scared when they start seeing all the things available to people with ER, HER2. 
Well, you know, but lost in all the noises, uh, chemotherapy works better in the triple negatives than it does in the other cohorts that we treat. And our triple negative breast cancer patients, at least in the adjuvant setting, get a big wallop out of their risk from chemotherapy, maybe the largest benefit that we see in terms of subsets from chemo. So I always feel like we've made some of our patients crazier than we need to. I totally agree with Cliff, and I think that's the message that these patients need to have, is they actually are the ones that really need the chemotherapy, and they have the best benefit. So I 100% agree with that. So final, just final comment. I saw that, I guess it was a couple weeks ago in a European meeting in Barcelona, we were talking about predictors of response to treatment. And we have very few of these in oncology. We have ER, HER2, Oncotype, and Breast, KRAS, and Colon, EGFR mutations, and EML-ALK mutations in lung. In any event, I saw that Gunter van Makowitz presented data from a German study, believe it or not, looking at an IHC, cytoplasmic IHC stain for PARP. So we'll see. I mean, I don't think it's been looked at yet with PARP inhibitors. This is actually a chemo trial. But maybe next year we're going to be talking about another predictive assay. The next case, presented by Dr. Laurie Alphonse, focused on one of the most vexing questions in early breast cancer management of the patient with a T1A and 0 HER2-positive invasive cancer. A 60-year-old active healthcare provider at my hospital who presents with an abnormal mammogram. She has only a five-year history of hormone replacement therapy after a total abdominal hysterectomy as her risk factor. On physical exam, she was essentially benign. She comes to me with outside imaging, which was a bilateral mammogram with essentially fatty-replaced breast tissue and a new 5-millimeter ovoid nodule in the upper inner quadrant of her right breast. Additional magnification views revealed this to be as such. It was not able to be targeted on ultrasound, either at the outside institution or mine. The radiologist at the outside institution did recommend breast MRI. She did have that, but the subtraction images weren't able to be completed, secondary to some ferrous material in her jaw that she had reconstruction years ago after an accident. So she did undergo minimally invasive stereotactic breast biopsy, and she did have DCIS and a very small focus of invasive ductal carcinoma, grade 2. Receptors were done on that core, which did reveal ER-positive, PR negative, HER2 positive disease. She then underwent a needle localization with a partial mastectomy, sentinel lymph node mapping. She had two sentinel lymph nodes that were negative for metastatic carcinoma, and she had a residual area of invasive disease measuring two millimeters. She didn't have any lymphovascular invasion, and she did have a residual area of DCIS high grade with comedonecrosis. All of our margins are negative for invasive and in situ carcinoma. So, Julie, we have the dilemma of the patient with a small node negative T1A and 0, but HER2 positive tumor. Can you talk a little bit about how you would think through this specific case, and would you be open to giving this lady chemotherapy trastuzumab with a 2-millimeter tumor? Right. This is a tough case, and we've actually reviewed the data on this because we're planning a Southwest Oncology Group-led trial in this area. There are about 6,000 patients a year in the U.S. diagnosed with a T1A or B ER-positive, HER2-positive breast cancer. So it's not an insignificant number. We do have to struggle with this. And looking at some databases, particularly the MD Anderson database, we found that for either observation only, 
in these very small tumors or endocrine therapy only, that the relapse rate is 15 to 20% over about 10 years. So that's not insignificant for tumors that are quite small and ER positive, but that her two positivity there is what's driving it. So the study that we're designing is going to be endocrine therapy, trastuzumab together, versus endocrine therapy, trastuzumab, and lapatinib, thinking that we'd never get enough patients enrolled, we'd never be able to do the randomization to not give any HER2-targeted therapy. So, and just to clarify, yeah. lapatinib is an also an anti-HER agent, right. TKI. So, so, so the issue here is that we didn't think we could get enough patients to enroll and be randomized to not get the HER2-targeted therapy. We didn't think it was feasible to do the randomization to chemo or not question, which is what you're asking. So we're going to define the endpoint as if we achieve a 95% or greater five-year disease-free survival, we will have success without chemo, essentially. What about off-protocol? Um, and I'll ask Sandy... This lady's got a two-millimeter tumor. Laurie, what kind of, is this the kind of patient who might be willing to go for chemotherapy for really a borderline benefit or somebody who really wanted to avoid chemo? She is the one who brought the information to me ahead of time being in the medical field. She's a nurse. She did her homework ahead of time. And she wanted to know, I will do something that will provide me benefit. But if you're telling me that you don't really know what the data is going to suggest, then do I really need it? And can I have Herceptin without the chemotherapy? What are the risks? So Sandy, how about trastuzumab without chemo? And if she says, will chemo improve my chances at all? What would you say? Well, as you all probably know, there have been several adjuvant trials that have included patients that have negative nodes, but most of the patients have tumors greater than one centimeter or two centimeters. So there's almost no data in this group, the T1As for sure. The BCIRG study was really the only study that included these patients, but it was a very small number, just a handful of patients. So we really don't, to tell this patient, we have no data to say that Herceptin is really going to benefit her. On the other hand, when you look at the node negative subsets of the large studies, which are several thousand patients, you do have the same reduction in recurrence that you do in the node positive. The hazard ratio is about the same. So if you would say in this case, and I'm not sure her recurrence is really 15 or 20 percent, and I know Julie mentioned that, but if you, all these studies are retrospective, so I don't even think we have a real handle on that for this kind of patient. But let's say her recurrence may be 10 to 15 percent. If you think it's going to cut in half, then that would be 5 to, you know, 7 percent then it might be reasonable to consider it or at least discuss it with the patient. However, I would not personally recommend it. I just think probably the recurrence is not going to be as high as 15% and we don't have the data. I wouldn't off-study give her Herceptin alone with just endocrine treatment. I think you know, we definitely don't have the data. I'm glad to hear SWOG's going to do that trial. We just discussed that in the NSABP too. The group at Dana-Farber is doing a study looking at just Taxol with Herceptin in these kind of patients, which is a non-randomized study, but will give us a better natural history with chemotherapy and Herceptin in these patients. But my answer would be, I would not give her Herceptin. So Cliff, as has been mentioned, there's not like a whole lot of data on this question, particularly from the trials. But the three that we wanted to get your comment on was there were two series that were recently published from the MD Anderson and also from Milan. And then there was a paper your group presented at the Breast Cancer Symposium last fall looking retrospectively at your experience. 
Though all else being equal, we know that HER2 is a poor prognostic feature, and that's what the first two studies really show, because these are T1A and B tumors where you expect a very good outcome, and they describe distant recurrence risks that are substantial. On the face of it, these risks of recurrence look high enough to justify systemic therapy. Historically, we've offered systemic therapy generally when the risk of distant recurrence was as much as 10% or higher, sometimes below that. And these would give you reassurance, but they don't answer the question, does the treatment that you offer actually change the outcome? And as Sandy described, we don't have prospective randomized data for that smallest risk cohort of HER2-positive tumors. The Dana-Farber trial described will provide a point estimate, and to be very precise about it, if it shows a less than, I think, 5% risk of distant recurrence in, I think it's 600 patients more or less over a long-term follow-up, it will make it very difficult to do a randomized trial, which is what Julie was referring to, of chemo versus not. But it also will probably establish weekly paclitaxel and trastuzumab as the go-to standard. Heather MacArthur in our place recognized the opportunity to do a case control study because while we didn't have an absolute rule on this, essentially we gave nobody systemic chemo or trastuzumab for tumors below a centimeter in size before 2005. And then within weeks of the pivotal presentations at ASCO, we changed the standard approach and we essentially treated all patients with tumors certainly above a half a centimeter or five millimeters in size. You're talking about the first presentation of the adjuvant trastuzumab trials. And so what that does, it is not randomized data. It is certainly weak compared to what we want in randomized data, but it's all we have. And there is a remarkable observation, and in fact, it should be in press in cancer, I think, in the very near future. And bottom line is that about a 9% distant recurrence risk before 2005 and about a 0% recurrence risk after 2005 with matched follow up, truncated at two years. And interestingly enough, our radiation oncologists have gone back into that data set, and I'll just mention that the local recurrence risk is obviously also dramatically reduced. So I'm the first to say that one should not have practice standards established by retrospective analyses, especially these which weren't even from patients on a clinical trial, let alone those that were prospectively studied. But it is a really provocative observation suggesting that these smallest tumors can be rendered nearly cured with therapy. I still have to add that that probably does nothing to address the case at hand. We didn't have any two-millimeter tumors, and I will follow Sandy. I would offer this patient hormone therapy. So, Laurie, what's the follow-up on the patient? She did not get systemic chemotherapy. She is on an aromatase inhibitor. Okay. Now, one other issue we wanted to bring up here, and actually it's pretty timely because I think it's just in actually electronically been published. I'm not sure the hard copies out are the new guidelines for ER testing. And they used American College of Pathology and ASCO to put this together. And it followed another similar effort in HER2. And Sandy, actually there's an article in the New York Times from about a week ago. And tomorrow there's going to be a letter to the editor from Dan Hayes and Antonio Wolf about this issue. So it's not unlikely you're going to see patients coming in in the next few weeks asking about the issue of, is my ER really what you think it is? And what about my HER2? So, Sandy, any thoughts about this issue of ER and HER2 testing and quality control? Well, in the new guidelines, they recommend that ER positive has to be greater than 1% instead of 10%, which is what a lot of laboratories use. So that was one big change there. And I think a lot of laboratories are actually using computerized diagnosis rather than manual diagnosis. So that can 
be good and bad, but I think it can be good because you can remove a lot of the noise and actually have a true ER level. The concern, though, is because you can have fixation issues, all sorts of things with immunohistochemistry that it may not be as accurate as some other tests. And one thing, for example, would be using Oncotype for ER. I think even though it's mRNA, I think it's to me, very helpful to have a central laboratory doing one test. And when you go back and look at a lot of the different studies, when the central laboratories test, and for example, in the NSABP, looking at the B24 data, there was about a 10% difference. In other words, if they were ER negative in the local laboratory, 10% of those were actually ER positive in the central laboratory. So I think one of the big issues is centralization, where it gets done. And the other thing that the New York Times article brought up is when the testing is done, that is either on the core or on the surgical biopsy. And there's been a lot of data, at least a couple studies. Corey did a study where they looked at fixation. And when you do the cores, you immediately drop it in formal. And and so you don't have it lying around and whatever happening to it happening. They did a study where they let it sit before formal and for one hour, two hours, up to eight hours and found... As you probably know, a lot of times when you're in the OR, you give it to the pathologist, you don't know how long it takes for them to put in formalin, you don't know if they just drop the whole thing in formalin, which also is a problem in getting accurate ER diagnoses. So it really is recommended that you do it on the core. On the other hand, when you do it on the core, for HER2, for example, you can have heterogeneity, so you could miss some HER2 positivity. So it's a really thorny issue, but I think overall doing it on the core is the best bet. I want to also get into the issue, Tom, of this study that is going to be done by the NSABP. Amazingly enough, looking at anti-HER2 therapy, trastuzumab, and people who do not have HER2 positive tumors. Uh, You told me, I guess the NSABP actually met this past weekend, and it looks like it's going to be those who have IHC of 1 and 2 plus and FISH negative, they're going to get trastuzumab or not, right? Right. There will be a study which is hopefully going to be launched before the end of this year as it clears through the NCI and CTEP with some revisions where patients will be randomized who are FISH negative but IHC 1 or 2 plus positive to receive Herceptin. This is based on a review of data from NSABP B31 that's been validated now by three outside sources on the review showing that these groups of patients certainly had a risk reduction that was significant enough to warrant the exploration of this in a randomized study. Cliff, you know, this is just totally counterintuitive. We've always thought, you know, it says this beautiful biology of anti-HER2 therapy, and now Soonpei comes along and says, looks like it reduces recurrences just as well if they don't have HER2 activation. What do you think is going on? Every single case that they call HER2 normal in central review was called positive first by an outside pathologist. So unless this trial is going to test them outside, find the positives that then test negative and randomize them, it's not actually asking the question that Sunpeg's data addressed. The next case was presented by Dr. Linda Hahn of a woman with locally advanced disease who adamantly refused chemotherapy. I have a 69-year-old lady who presented initially with left nipple retraction, and her clinical exam did confirm this. It was also associated with a palpable 3-centimeter irregular firm subareolar mass, as well as several abnormal left axillary lymph nodes. 
Her mammogram was negative, but her ultrasound did confirm the clinical findings, and corneal biopsy of the left subareolar mass confirmed a low-grade invasive ductal carcinoma with lobular features, strongly positive for estrogen, weakly positive for progesterone, and negative for HER2-new overexpression. Two of her axillary lymph nodes were also positive on fine needle aspiration. So I had recommended to this lady to consider neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but she was absolutely adamant and refused all intervention with the exception of surgery. Unfortunately, her surgery was delayed due to multiple factors, including uncontrolled hypertension, some concern of aortic stenosis, and several unexpected deaths in her family. So with this in mind, I finally convinced her to have neoadjuvant hormone therapy while she was undergoing medical clearance and attending to her family crisis. She refused enrollment in the Z1031 clinical trial, but did consent to have neoadjuvant hormone therapy, was placed on aromacin for four months, did demonstrate excellent clinical response, the nipple areolar retraction completely resolved, the breast became softer, and the left subareolar mass had decreased in size, as did the left axillary nodes. So just a word from Mike. Do you think you would have tried to push this woman towards chemo or actually would have suggested hormones right from the beginning? In our practice, she would almost certainly have got new adjuvant hormones. And she had a good response. She did. So she underwent uh, left-modified radical mastectomy, and the final pathology confirmed that the tumor had decreased from 3 centimeters to 1.5 centimeter. But three out of 14 lymph nodes had residual disease, of which the largest nodal metastasis was 1.3 centimeter, but there was no evidence of extranodal extension. I really felt that she should consider chemotherapy and referred her to my medical oncology colleague who obtained Oncotype assay. The Oncotype recurrence score was 15, and he recommended continuation of hormone therapy only. And what's her current situation? She is now two years out and disease-free. Mike, can you comment a little bit more about, you know, you and I have been talking on education programs for years about the split on neoadjuvant endocrine therapy and chemotherapy between the U.S. and Europe. I mean, I think it's important to say we still use a lot of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but in the sort of women that we've talked about early on, which are younger women, the fact is that increasingly there are larger numbers of older women. About 40% of all breast cancer occurs in the UK in women over 70. And a lot of these women aren't that fit or suitable for chemotherapy. They come with larger tumors. And we've learned we're now becoming even 55-year-old, 60-year-old women who aren't that fit, we're happy to give them neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. We've learned a few things. First of all is you probably should treat them for longer, for about 9 or 10 months, because you get prolonged response over that period of time. And this sort of lady is 1.5 centimeters now. I uh, see she had a modified radical mastectomy. We would almost certainly, if she didn't want a mastectomy, have continued that therapy and preserved her breast. One of the things I wanted to ask you, what was that oncotype? On. Was that on the final pathology or was that on the initial diagnosis? It was on the initial core. In, that's good, the initial core. Because one of the things that happens is you've got to be careful. There are five proliferation genes. Is it four or five proliferation genes in the Oncotype DX? And these aromatase inhibitors are remarkably good at switching off proliferation. So if you do an Oncotype after 
endocrine therapy, there's going to be major changes in our oncotype. That's int- Have you actually seen that in patients, pre and post oncotype? We're doing it just now with oncotype. There's a couple of areas I think of concern is very low ER cancers, how good is... Uh, we're talking about immunohistochemistry, so we're looking at some of our low ER cancers, and we're looking at changes in oncotype, and whether that's actually predictive of outcome as well. But so, I mean, we have a clear example here of a lady who's responding, had a low recurrence score, and we would have probably also continued on endocrine therapy and not given the chemotherapy. And I think one of the things you learn about new adjuvant endocrine therapy, the more you use it, the more you will use it because it so obviously works. The tumor shrinks so dramatically. And the other thing is, if you look at the percentage of patients you can convert from mastectomy to breast-conserving surgery, we can get about 70% conversion from mastectomy to breast-conserving surgery with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. No neoadjuvant chemotherapy regimen has ever got that rate of conversion. So, Cliff, we want to get your take about the issue of oncotype and node positive. This isn't exactly a classic situation, but sounds like in this situation it kind of reinforced what the patient wanted to do and maybe made the doc a little bit more comfortable about it. And actually, I'm not sure I found an investigator, Cliff, who's ordered a mama print. Have you? You haven't looked very hard. You need to go to San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco. Well, yeah, maybe. No, seriously, have you ordered it? No, but there's a story here that bears a little focus. The mammoprint's a wonderful test, FDA approved for prognosis. The reason that we order tests, though, actually isn't prognosis so much as prediction. At the extremes, of course, prognosis would be all you need. If you could prognosticate a good enough result that you don't need to give chemo, that would be important, but we don't quite have that result with mammoprint yet. The reason that so many people do use Oncotype is that to an extent it provides prediction, and specifically it provides prediction of the chemo benefit the same way that ER or HER2 provide prediction of response to endocrine therapy or trastuzumab. So the question about node positive disease has been addressed in one small retrospective subset of a SWOG study, 8814. 8814 was born out of a 1985 consensus conference in the U.S. where still at that point tamoxifen was the recommended therapy for node positive postmenopausal breast cancer. They used an unbalanced randomization, so a small number of patients actually got TAM and a larger number got chemotherapy. At this point, it was CAF and tamoxifen. They either got them overlapping or sequentially. And you may recall that the overlapping group didn't look as good as the sequential. So for Kathy Albain's Lancet paper just published, the retrospective look was at tamoxifen alone or tamoxifen following CAF. And the oncotype performed essentially the same there as it did in the NSABPB20. So on the one hand, you have two independent data sets that both show the same predictive value of a high oncotype score for a chemo benefit. The negative, not to be lost, is that the numbers here are tiny. Double digits is all. And before we would make a wholesale change in a standard treatment chemo and hormone therapy for healthy postmenopausal women, I would think we still need a little bit more. How do we use it? At the edges. So an older patient, a patient reluctant to get chemo, a patient with comorbidities, I think the oncotype is a very useful test for settling the difference. But for the average healthy 64-year-old with a node-positive breast cancer, we're not ordering it. So, Julie, as I was transferring flights in Houston to come here, I got this email from a medical oncologist who's one of the listeners to our programs and says... I've got a 40-year-old lady with one positive node. 
40 years old, one positive node, well differentiated, KI67, less than 10% for what that's worth. And he went ahead and did an oncotype, and it's 13, it's low. He's leaning towards not giving her chemo, but like a lot of people, particularly in a 40-year-old woman, is pretty nervous about it. Julie, which camp are you in? Well, a couple of things. Taylor X, remember, which was node negative, not a one positive node, moved the range for randomization of chemo to 11 to 25. So a recurrence score of 13 in that trial, if this had been a node negative patient, would have put you in an intermediate risk. And those ranges were debated upon and where the cut points for 11 and 25 were, were where we ultimately a large group of people were comfortable with randomizing. Additionally, it's although biology is increasingly important in outcomes, stage still matters. And you have to be careful with one positive node that you can't read off the Oncotype DX chart for what's your risk of distant recurrence right. at 10 years despite endocrine therapy. For one positive node, it's not the same as for zero. It bumps up. So you also have to take that into account. So with all of that, in a 40-year-old, I would probably have leaned toward chemo anyway and not sent the assay. And I also would argue that 13 isn't particularly low. Okay, let's say the recurrence score is 5. Absolutely. Now I'll ask you, same situation, 40-year-old, one positive no, but it's absolutely low. It's 5. Chemo? Same thing with you? Still feel the same way? No, if I had sent it and got a 5 back, I would have paid attention to it because I would have only sent it because I was going to use it. So... What I might have in that particular case said to the patient was, this would tell me that your tumor is much more endocrine-sensitive versus chemo-sensitive, so let's maximize your endocrine therapy here. And maybe in this 40-year-old, that would have been what pushed me to shut down her ovaries, which I don't normally do, in addition to giving tamoxifen. Or maybe it would push me to give extended adjuvant endocrine therapy. Sandy, this is really a tough situation. When these SWOG data first came out, You know, people really were like, are we really not going to give chemo to somebody who's got a node-positive tumor? But then the question is, maybe they're still going to have a high recurrence rate, but if you can't make it lower with chemo, you know, why put the patient through it? Linda, what are you hearing in your situation in terms of Oncotype with node-positive? And who's ordering Oncotype? The surgeon? or Are you usually ordering it or the oncologist? In my practice, I typically order the Oncotype and then make the referral based on that, as well as the considerations of the patient. It used to be in that my community, we had a lot of resistance from the medical oncologist regarding the Oncotype assay, but I think the pendulum has really swung, and I'm actually seeing the extremes now where they will base the decision solely on the Oncotype assay. And so my question to the panel is, is that becoming the standard on which we are now basing adjuvant therapy? I see Cliff shaking your head. A lot of people have said what you've said, older patients, not too many nodes or part of one node. Is that the case, or do you think that we're moving towards using it uniformly? Where do you think things are heading, Cliff? Yes, well, I think that this is a time of change. It is true that biology, I think it's true, that biology is the key driver, and there's no reason just because you have seven positive lymph nodes that your tumor has to be chemosensitive. That's true. 
But the broader issue is that we've had almost 20 years of a slow fall in breast cancer mortality, and we've had some broad use of chemotherapy introduced over that time, and we're reluctant to withdraw that and potentially harm the improved mortality rate without evidence. And we don't have great evidence yet for the average young person to withhold chemo on the basis of anything. So I don't think that yet we should be putting Oncotype in front of all of our decision-making for all patients. What do you think about these data, Sandy? Well, I think, first of all, it's only in postmenopausal women. Right. And that's a very important point. And also, it is a very small data set. And we're used to very large data sets in the adjuvant setting. So I personally am struggling with what to do in node-positive patients. I really do believe that biology is important, and I believe this data is telling us something, and having done this for 25 years, I really believe that many of these patients don't need chemotherapy. I really do. But yet, I am reluctant with the thousands of women that are on clinical trials showing a benefit of chemotherapy, showing that the mortality is falling from breast cancer with all the systemic treatment we've been giving to take it away at this point. So I have not used it, and I'd probably be in the three to five range in node-positive disease. I think on the other hand, and I really want to emphasize what Julie said too, in the case that was presented, she was 40 years old and premenopausal with a low recurrence score of five. I think what that tells me is exactly what Julie says is right, is that hormonal therapy is the most important thing for her. And that kind of patient, I would do the ovarian suppression and tamoxifen and really maximize that in that patient. So it does help us in that regard, in that setting. So I think it's evolving. I think that we need to see more trials. I know that SWAG has talked about doing a trial in node-positive disease. We've tried to get it approved twice now, and it's been rejected. So (laughs) we're working on a third try. Well, the Italians are doing it. Anyhow, they managed it. Maybe we can join theirs. But, Julian, I'm sure you see patients who are 50 years old with five positive nodes, maybe not that often, who don't want adjuvant chemo. And I have to say, I believe that not everybody with positive nodes benefits from chemo. I truly do. And so I agree. I think we're all struggling with this right now, and we'd love to put these kinds of patients on a trial and really answer it with large numbers of patients. You know, as Sandy points out, we haven't even looked at it in the premenopausal population. The other thing that would be interesting to look at, we're looking at, how does Oncotype change during treatment? And do you get any value looking at Oncotype after chemotherapy? Does it tell you how the patients are going to do in the long term? Because we still struggle what to do in those patients who don't get any response. And we do need studies in this area. And it may be you know, in patients who have high Oncotype after chemotherapy that we know they're going to do badly, that they would be a group to target specifically. For studies, But I think the point I was going to make is what Cliff said early on. Stage doesn't mean patients are going to respond. Biology means response. We've learned that ER is a very good marker for endocrine therapy, but we don't have any good markers for chemotherapy. And we've also learned in surgery that actually less can produce just the same results. But you've got to be targeted. And for me, the concern I have continually about chemotherapy is this, this blunderbuss therapy without the target. And perhaps what the things that Oncotype does is it's proliferation driven and chemotherapy works against proliferating cells. So perhaps this is the, what we should be using rather than just stage of disease because I do worry that we're over-treatment is for me, I know there's always this worry you're under-treating patients, but over-treatment is just as bad. 
I kind of like that concept of chemotherapy as blunderbuss therapy. I'm not sure how the oncologists would respond to that, but a lot of times it probably feels a lot like that. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty and to our ASBS case presenters, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for this special highlights program of a satellite meeting held at the annual American Society of Breast Surgeons meeting. 